Right here, we're going to be beginning this week, officially starting our Bible study, going through the book of Matthew. So this is going to be Matthew chapter number one, week number one. There's going to be 28 weeks where we're going through uh, each of the individual chapters of the book of Matthew. So this will be the first week. Last week, we had the introduction. And one of the things I want to remind you of, and this is going to be extremely important, is the theme of the book of Matthew. And we're going to see it here in the beginning of the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter number one. We're going to see it all the way through every single chapter, strongly. You know, this theme is not just something light. It's, it's, it's very obvious. It's very deep. It's deeply embedded. All of the themes of the Gospels. Now, there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What the Gospels are generally, or roughly, they are, they are basically or essentially the record of the eyewitnesses of the life, the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is virtually what the Gospels record. Uh, and they are, of course, written by you know, those that were eyewitnesses. You can verify that just through you know, uh, uh, the basic face value reading. Now, each of these Gospels have different themes. Because people ask, why are there four Gospels? Because there's a lot of stories that are repeated. There's a lot of unique stories. And none of them are exactly alike. You know, many people try to point to contradictions within the Gospels, which there are no contradictions. You know, they don't contradict, they complement. You learn by comparing them to one another. And, you know, uh, uh, the book of Matthew will have a certain focus, while the book of Mark will have a certain focus. The book of Luke and the book of John likewise. Now, the book of Matthew, the theme is the King of the Jews. This is a very strong theme. We're going to see it strongly here in Matthew chapter number 1. And I'll just want to real quickly, briefly go through the other themes of the other Gospels. The book of Mark, the theme is Jesus as a servant. It is Jesus being of no reputation. Um, so the book of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that specific genealogy highlights him being a Jew, him being the king of the Jews. Well, the book of Mark has no genealogy. It has no pedigree at all. The book of Luke has a genealogy. The, look, the book of uh, uh, John, excuse me, has a genealogy of sorts. And I'll get to that in just a second. But the book of Mark has no genealogy. There's not very much speaking coming from Jesus. Um, it's a lot of like kind of over his shoulder kind of watching him. And uh, it's, it's geared toward Jesus being a worker, being a servant, coming and, and, and being his humility. And uh, it's just, it's not as much preaching, like I said, it's a lot of him just working. It's him being of no reputation. That's why it has no genealogy. He just kind of came from nowhere. He's a nothing, basically, is kind of what it's, you know, in that sense, of course, is what it's uh, putting forth. Is that he, he, had put, he made himself nothing. He made himself a man of, of humility, right? The book of Luke, the theme is the Son of Man. So that phrase is found in all the Gospels, but it's found many more times, an excess more of more times in the book of Luke. Many more times it's found in the book of Luke as opposed to the book of Matthew, Mark, and John. The Son of Man. It focuses on His humility. There's a genealogy right here in Matthew. There's also a genealogy in Luke. And they're not identical. The one in Luke follows all the way back to Adam. So it goes, the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Well, this genealogy, as we're going to see here in a minute, goes back to Abraham. Why? Because it wants to highlight that he's a Jew. Who was the father of the Jews? The Jews, when they speak of their father, who are they always talking about? Abraham, right? When you look at the genealogy in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, it, does, it goes further than Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam. Why? 
Because it wants to depict him and, 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 and present Jesus in the light of his humanity. It focuses on him being a man, more so in the book of Luke. The famous story that you hear like in uh, uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas, this, the famous story that is read from the Bible of Jesus' birth, that is found in the book of Luke. You find more of a focus and, and much more details of when Jesus is born in the book of Luke. Why? Because it's focusing on his humanity, the fleshly aspect of Jesus. The book of John doesn't have a physical genealogy, but it speaks of Jesus being God. And it starts off and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The book of John heavily focuses on Jesus being God. If you want to try to find one book to try to prove that Jesus is God, I mean, you just, it is just a buffet if you want to turn to the book of John. Like, all of the most famous verses come from the book of John, where he's, you know, he's telling Philip, you know, he says, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And he tells him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? He says, he that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. You know, he tells him, he says, in uh, uh, John chapter number 8, you know, uh, uh, that's where the, the Jews are accusing him of being a devil. And he's, he speaks of how, you know, uh, um, oh, I can't even remember how it's quoted. What is the verse in John 8, 24? Um, they understood not. They understood not well prior to that. Goodness, it just totally, I quote it all the time and I totally lost it. But there's numerous, numerous verses, you know, throughout the book of John where he even says, before Abraham was, I am. So just over and over and over again in the book of John, he's just over and over again, he's focusing on himself being God. That, that is the theme of the book of John. It is that, the, that Jesus Christ was God himself in the flesh. Like I said, it doesn't start out with a genealogy. It starts out with that he was here in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it tells us, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So, Matthew, it has a genealogy. And right here in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1... It highlights two people within that genealogy to tell you the whole theme of the book of Matthew, which is the king of the Jews. Look at Matthew chapter number 1. Look at verse number 1. It says this, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So notice that it says, the book of the generation. Now that refers to the life, but it's also a word that's referring to his genealogy. It says the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, and it tells you two specific people that he descends from. The son of David and the son of Abraham. I want you to look down at verse number 6. It says this, and Jesse begat David the king. So who is it identifying David as? It identifies David as who? The king. Now, from David on, every one of these guys is a king. But David is known as the king of Israel. He was the greatest king that they had. He's looked to, you know, more so than any of the other kings. Now Solomon, of course, had riches and things along those lines. But David was really the first king. David uh, of Judah, that is, of the line of Judah. He replaced Saul. David was a great man. He was a man after God's own heart. He's, in that sense, he is far above all the others. And he's highlighted here, while no one else is, as David the king. Well, who else does it say? It says the son of David, who is the king, and then it says the son of Abraham, is who is who? He's the father of the Jews. There is your theme of the book of Matthew, and we're going to see this continue on strongly throughout uh, the entire book. Look at verse number 2. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, 
and his brethren. Now right there, you're already right off the bat going to notice that some of these names are a little bit different, right? Judas there is Judah of the Old Testament. And here in just a minute, I'm going to kind of go over just real quickly. And uh, you can, of course, go back and listen to the audio or listen to this video if you'd like uh, um, and, and uh, compare this and get and take notes of what I'm going to go over. But I'm going to show you some of the differences between uh, the names of the Old Testament and the New Testament and how to be able to kind of tell who you're speaking about. And I'll show you why that matters and why it's interesting here in just a minute. But Judas there, that is the Old Testament name Judah, right? Well, so we'll see that S there is kind of, uh, has is replaced the H. So it says Judas, or Judah as we know him, and his brethren. That's the twelve tribes of Israel, who is Jacob. Verse 3, And Judas begat Perez and Zara of Thamar. And Perez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram. And Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasin. And Naasin begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Booz of Rechab. And Booz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse, and then verse 6, and Jesse begat David the king. Now that's our first uh, delineation because these are broken down into 14 generations. And I want to highlight something that we're going to come back to later. There in verse number 3 it tells us this. It says, and Judas begat Perez of Zara, and Zara, I'm sorry, of Thamar. Now, Perez and Zara were twins. We were told about this in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis chapter number 38 is where this takes place. I want you to go ahead and turn back to there. So use your bulletin as I suggest all the time. Go back to, with me to Genesis chapter number 38 and I want to read about this. Now one thing that's interesting about this genealogy to begin with is we don't always see this but we see a few women that are mentioned in the genealogy here. In verse number 3 it says again, And Judas begat Perez and Zara, and then it says, Of Thamar. Now that's Tamar of the Old Testament. Thamar it says there. That is a woman of the Old Testament. Now you may or may not be familiar with that. That's why I want to go over it real quick and we'll get an idea of what took place here. And I want to reference something here in just a minute. Look at Genesis chapter 38 verse number 1. It says, And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her and she conceived and bare a son. And he called his name Ur. So this is the first son of Judah. It says Ur was his name. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shelah. And he was, and he was at Chezib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So there we see Tamar being mentioned. Um, but I want, I want to point out to you, you may or may not have noticed this if you're not familiar with it. You, and uh, we're going to read the entirety of the story, but this may puzzle you right now. But notice it said, And Judas begat Perez and Zara, it says, of Thamar. So I want you to notice that in the genealogy in Matthew chapter number 1, verse number 3, it's telling you that Judas, Judas begat Perez, right, of who? Of Tamar. Well, here when we read so far, it tells us that, that Tamar was the wife of Ur, who was the, the son of Judah. Okay, well look at verse 7. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It says, and the Lord 
slew him. So obviously he's a very, a very evil, wicked man to where God intervenes. And of course he's dealing very closely with the nation of Israel, with Judah, knowing that of this line is going to come the Christ one day. He takes this very seriously and of course he must have been a very evil man er, to, to the point where God just wouldn't put up with it anymore. It says and he slew him and God does this very, very often. Uh, throughout the Bible, especially when he's dealing with the, the nation of Israel and you know, his people. He will punish those that he loves and those that are his children. Look at what it says in verse 8. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. So now Judah goes to the second born, and, he, and, and that's Onan. He's saying, hey... I want you to go in under your brother's wife because this was, of course, you know, this ended up being the law later. This was right to do because she's a widow now and he's of age. So he says, hey, Onan, I want you to go in unto your brother's wife and marry her. And then it says, and raise up seed to thy brother. So it would, it would be in his brother's name. The, the, the child would live on after Ur's name. Uh, basically, that it was Ur's uh, uh, son. That's how that they would treat this situation. Look at verse 9. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, saying whatever child is born, he knew that this, this child was not going to be named after himself. It was not going to be carrying on his lineage, if you will. So, and Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife, it says that he spilled it on the ground. Now, of course, that's referring to the relationship between husband and wife and, of course, you know, married couples right now and those that are older are going to understand what it's talking about. So he spilled the seed specifically. It says that he knows that the seed was not going to be his, so it says that he spilled the seed on the ground because the child was not going to be named after him. It was not going to be carrying on his lineage. And it says, lest, like unless, that he should give seed to his brother. So he wanted this child to be, you know, to carry on his name, but he's he's obviously upset that you know it would be you know carrying on his brother's name, so he just doesn't even you know give seed to his now wife, Tamar. And look at verse 10. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Now, this kind of stuff doesn't happen where he's intervening with individual people very often in the Bible, but you can see that God is very serious about this. Now, number one, I believe that it's a commandment to be fruitful and multiply. You know, we're told to bring forth abundantly. You know, uh, this commandment is given multiple times in the Bible. You know, uh, in the, the book of Psalms, it speaks about the man that has many children. It talks about as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. And he says, happy is the man that hath his quill full of them, saying it's full of them. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 next, the ne very next chapter, I believe it's like Psalm uh, 129, I believe is what it is. It speaks of how, you know, how the blessed family is going to have children just round about her, the, the table. You know, that is a blessing for, you know, children of God and for Christians to have many children. We're, we're commanded, be fruitful and multiply. So, of course, that is one sin that was being committed here. That's, that is a, a sin that was being committed, but I believe it goes further than that. I believe that it is also because this is the line that the Christ is going to be coming from. When you read throughout the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is just pointing towards the coming of the Christ. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. We get to the first book of the, the New Testament, and it's not a coincidence. Hey, here's the genealogy of the Christ that you've been reading about all throughout the Old Testament. He's come. Here is the Messiah. So that's why I believe that this is so serious, and he slew both of them. 
Look at verse number 11 now. Let's continue. It says, Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Sheila, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. <clears throat> Verse 13, And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. So now, so she sees and she understands, hey, you know, Shelah is of age. This is Judah's third born son, right? Shelah is of age and, and Judah had promised that he would give Shelah as soon as he was of age to Tamar to marry. Right? And then uh, what has taken place here, his wife had died. You know, he's, he, he, once he was comforted, it says he's, he's, he's traveling, right? He's going to, you know, to shear his sheep. He's traveling. And Tamar had heard that he's going to travel. And I want you to notice what it says. Look at verse number 15. It says, when Judah saw her, I'm sorry, verse 14. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil. And wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way, to Timnath. For she, saw, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. So it says that she put her widow's garments off, right? And it says she covered herself in a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot. And that's what exactly what she was going for. It says because she had covered her face. So that's a sign of a, of a woman that is a harlot is what it's telling you there. It's because it's a shame. It's a shameful thing to be a prostitute. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because women nowadays dress worse than harlots did then. Women were so ashamed, it's telling you, when they were a prostitute, like an actual literal prostitute, that they would make sure they covered their face so that no one knew what they were doing. That they were actually getting paid for relations. So they covered their face so nobody would know who they are. Now, and, and, and you look around at women today, and a lot of the women that you maybe would, would refer to as, as being scantily clad, or people would even refer to them as, as being whorish or dressing like a whore, those women are, would, the women of the past who were actual literal whores and harlots were more modest than women who aren't even whores today. Who just, we would say, hey, she's dressed like a whore, which is a complete and absolute shame. Women had more decency then in the way that they dressed than they do today. Even harlots did than how just a regular casual woman dresses today. Look at what it says next. Verse 16, And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law, and she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? Now when she's saying, Come in unto me, this is you know, obviously referring to the relations again that a husband and wife are supposed to have. Now, does this sound like this is a very godly or righteous situation that's going on right now? It's a very wicked thing that is happening, right? Uh, let me ask you this question. So, This obviously looks very sinful. Does, is what Tamar is doing, does that sound good? Does it sound wicked as well? It's evil. What is Judah doing? Is that good? It's wicked as well. What happened to the first two children of Judah? Where the, did they seem like they were a righteous seed? Like he was raising up a righteous you know, a, a remnant? 
that was going to be, you know, going forth and, and conquering great things for God in the spiritual world? Not at all. They were both wicked and got to the point where God slew them. So you can see right now that, that this particular line or genealogy right now, how does it look? I mean, how does it look? What would you say? Very evil and wicked, doesn't it? Well, keep reading. Look at what it says. He says, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? Verse 17. And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? So he's saying, What are you going to pay me? And he's saying, I'll send you a kid from the flock. He's saying, I don't have it now, but I'll send it to you later. She said, Will you give me a pledge? Right? You know, a, a pledge, obviously, it's just like something like a surety. It's something that you're like promising, right? That I will give it to you later. You know, uh, till thou send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give thee? And she said, thy signet and thy bracelet. So this is something that can specifically identify who he is as a person. And thy staff that is in thy hand. And he gave it to her and came in unto her. And she conceived by him. So I want you to notice that now, Tamar is with child by who? Judah. By Judah. By her father-in-law, her previous father-in-law. Verse 19, And she arose up and went away and, lay, and laid by her veil from her, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his, his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the way? Uh, the wayside. And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah, Judah, and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. He said, I tried to pay her, but she's not there. Let her just take it to her. And it came to pass about three months after that, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth, and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying... By the man who these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet the, and bracelets and staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah my son. And he knew her again no more. And it, it says, And it came to pass in the time of her travail, it says, Watch this, Behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed, that's labor, that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread saying, this came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold his brother came out and she said, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. It says, therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand and his name was called Zara. So there you have Perez and Zara being recorded. Go back with me to Matthew chapter number 1 and look back again at verse number 3. It told us in Judas. Remember that's Judah now of the Old Testament. And Judas begat Perez and Zara. Those were the twins that we just saw being born of Thamar. And that's Tamar of the Old Testament. So does it look like already, like this seemed like this is a, a very godly couple? Or, or is, does this kind of seem like it's not somebody that you would expect to find in the line or the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I think that's what most people would say. It goes on, it says, And Pharez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasin, and Naasin begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Booz of Rechab. Now that's Boaz of the Old Testament. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. 
and Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Now, like I said, oftentimes women are not mentioned in genealogies, but it's interesting because we find a few different women mentioned in this. Number one, we saw Tamar in verse number three. Look with me at verse number five. It tells you and says, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. That is also, that's another woman. Ruth of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. That's who that's speaking to. That genealogy is given us just like it's pinned down right there at the end of the book of Ruth, the very last chapter. Then it goes on in verse number 6 and says, And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat, watch this, Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Now that's Uriah, right? That's Uriah right there. So that is what we see so far is Tamar, Ruth, and uh, also there was another woman, I'm sorry, Rahab. Verse 5, I totally missed that. And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab. Now that is Rahab of the Old Testament. So we actually have four women so far that have been mentioned here. Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and then at the end of verse number 6, what woman is it speaking of? I want you to notice how it's worded too. It says that David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. That's referring to Uriah of the Old Testament. Uriah. Now, does anyone remember who was formerly the wife of Uriah? Do you remember what her name was? That was Bathsheba. That's who that's referring to, right? Bathsheba. Now, her name is not pinned down, but I think that it's very important you know, that we notate that her name is not put down. It's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. Obviously, the Holy Spirit could have recorded that, but it chose to, to highlight or to draw attention to the grievous sin that was committed. Do you remember exactly what took place with Bathsheba? Of course, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he killed, he had Uriah murdered. And, and the, the, the uh, child that was born uh, from that uh, particular situation, God struck and God killed as a punishment to David, right? So notice that it, it brings attention to the fact that this woman was the woman of who? Uriah. So what automatically are you going to think of what David did to Uriah? Saying that, hey, he was rightfully, or she was rightfully Uriah's wife. You know, and it, 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 all throughout the Bible, we see God just, one of the sins that God condemns more than almost any other sin in the entire Bible is the, is the sin of adultery. And the reason why is because it's so destructive. You know, when one man goes in into another woman when he's married, or vice versa, you know, a woman goes and lies down with another man when she is married, right? You know, the Bible condemns this repeatedly. The Bible puts the death penalty, it sub subscribes the death penalty for, prescribes the death penalty for this because it is such a grievous, wicked, wicked sin. It's so hurtful to everyone that's around you. It's the most destructive sin that anyone could possibly commit. You look at what it's done to people when, you know, someone has committed adultery, it just destroys everyone's life around them. And it's something that you don't just move past. You know, maybe somebody can steal something. They commit a sin and they steal something. Maybe even you know, commit a, a really bad sin of just multitude of things. Stealing something, robbing you know, someone, drunk driving, things like that. You know, adultery is one of those things that you just can't move past. You can move past almost every other sin. But when somebody commits adultery on you, and you know, hey, you're supposed to forgive, you're supposed to, you know, uh, uh, you're, you know obviously, and we're going to get into this tonight, divorce is not an option according to the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
But you know what? That wound is always going to be there. Now, according to God's law in the Old Testament, if someone committed adultery on you, it would be the death penalty upon their head, and then, of course, you would be free to marry whom you will. So it makes perfect sense, and it looses that person from that, and they're able to get you know, true resolution and then move on. Um, but notice it brings attention to that. And notice that's another woman that was married. Now, I'm sorry, that was uh, in the genealogy. So we have four women that have been mentioned in the genealogy. Number one was Tamar. Now, is Tamar depicted in a good light in the Bible? What we know about her? Of course not, right? She, she's in this genealogy only because for the simple act, or the simple fact of her committing the act of uh, fornication with her father-in-law and deceiving him into doing so by pretending to be a harlot. I mean, that's pretty wicked. That's pretty evil and sinful, right? The next woman that we have that's mentioned in verse number 5 is Rahab. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but where it says Rahab, the R-A-C-H-A-B, that is actually Rahab. And I'm going to show you how to understand these names and how to figure out the Old Testament name with the New Testament name, right? So you can identify who it is. But that's Rahab. Does anybody remember Rahab from the Old Testament? What was Rahab? Rahab the harlot. Exactly the same as Tamar. Isn't that interesting, right? So Rahab is actually in the genealogy and in the line of the birth of Christ. A lot of people don't know that. And, uh, you know, Rahab was, uh, was she who led the messengers in and hid the messengers. And, uh, you know, uh, she hid them and, and harbored them and, 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 you know, allowed them to be refugees in her home. And, and of course, she sent away the men that came to try to look for them. And Joshua salvaged her life, saved her life and her whole family's life. And then it tells you in the book of Joshua that they dwelled in Israel until that day. So she came and just assimilated uh, into uh, the land of Israel with the people of Israel. And she actually ended up you know, uh, uh, marrying, it tells us there, Boaz. It says, and Solomon begat Boaz. It says, oh, I'm sorry, Solomon, I'm sorry. And Solomon begat Boaz of Rechab. So Solomon there married. Uh, Rahab in the early years of Israel and there was a child that was brought forth and it says that uh, that child was Boaz and then of course we know that Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Boaz was he who you know took Ruth in. Now who was Ruth? It's very important I want to highlight these people real quickly. These are women that are mentioned and they're all very particular women that are in the line of Jesus Christ. Who was Ruth? Ruth was also a foreigner. Now, Rahab, I want you to think about that. Rahab was of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were wicked. They were extremely evil. God waited. You know, he told Abraham, like, hey, I'm not going to give you the land yet because, you know, I'm waiting for the, the sins of the, the, the transgressions of the Canaanites to be full. When, they, when it would be justifiably, you know, uh, it would be justified for me to send people in here to wipe them out because of all of the violence and the wickedness that they performed. So he waited for them to get to a certain point. And I mean, it records some of the horrible, wicked things that they did in practice. They were heathen. They were pagan. They were just horribly, just exceedingly sinful group of people. And Rahab was of them. And she was a harlot. She obviously wasn't a very good person, right? And Ruth was also a foreigner. Ruth was a Moabitess. In the book of Ruth, Ruth was one that married into an Israelite when they moved away. So, of course, uh, uh, you know, you have uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law that moved away and, uh, you know, her husband. 
and um, I'm, for whatever reason, my mind is just, I can't think of it right now. But Ruth ends up coming back with her mother-in-law, and she m ends up marrying Boaz. She ends up marrying Boaz, has a child, and the child that they have is Jesse, or I'm sorry, Obed, uh, uh, and then Obed begat Jesse, and then Jesse begat David the king. So we can see that they're also in the line of Christ. And then, I want, and then also the other woman that's mentioned. The other woman is Bathsheba. Again, was Bathsheba a godly woman? Not even close. They all, obviously we know that you know, David coerced her into it, but she of course submitted to it. So what she had done and the context in which she is highlighted is very sinful and wicked of course as well. So notice the, the women that are mentioned, they have a rocky history. They have a rocky past for sure. And they're not just, uh, they, don't, they, they don't just have, you know, just this, this clean, pure background uh, before converting and to, you know, to Christianity, if you will. Look there at verse number 7. Yeah, so we'll keep reading here and finishing these genealogies. I want to highlight a couple of things again here in these last few verses of the genealogies. It tells us, And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Jeotham, and Jeotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Amon. And Amon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren. And then it says, about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. That's the other 14 generations. The first 14 was from Abraham to David. The next 14 was from David to Salathiel and, and his brethren when they were carried away into Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and besieged the city, destroyed the city, and then ended up carrying them away into captivity, took them into captivity at that time. That was with Salathiel. Now, so that was the, the, the second 14 generations that passed by. I want you to look at some of these names real quick and give you an idea of who they were from the Old Testament. And I want you to notice the differences in the names from the Old Testament name and the New Testament name. Now, if we look at verse number 7 there, it says, And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah. Now, who is that referring to when it says Reboam? That's Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. So there's a little bit of a different spelling there, that H and E there. So it would be R, you know, E-H. R-E-H. It's Rehoboam in the Old Testament. That's his name. So this is actually uh, uh, pretty common where it will, it will omit that, that E and H. Because look at verse 8. It says, And Asa begat Josephat. Right? It says, And Asa begat Josephat. That also, that in the Old Testament, Josephat, that is Jehoshaphat. So notice that it put an O right there, and it omitted in the name the E and the H. So you can kind of tell who it's speaking about there. And also you can compare the genealogies. If you want to look this up, this is in 1 Chronicles chapter number 9. Um, another difference that takes place, and this is really important, look at verse number 9. Uh, it tells you there, you know, and Ozias begat Joatham. That's just Jotham, so there's no A in the Old Testament. And Joatham begat, it says, Achaz. Now that is Ahaz. That's Ahaz. If you compare this genealogy to 1 Chronicles chapter number 9, this was the king of the Old Testament. His name was Ahaz, not Achaz in the Old Testament. New, to New Testament, when it's translated, it's Achaz. Notice that it's a CH. Well, that's how you can fit, this can help you figure out who that's speaking about in verse 5. Where it says, And Solomon begat Boaz of 
RACAB. So what happened there with the C and the H, with ACAS? They just added that, right? That C, right? So what it, what it really is, or yeah, yeah, they just added the C. So what it really is was Rahab from the Old Testament. It becomes a CH instead of just an H. Okay, and then Ezekias, that's Hezekiah. This is real common. The, the ending right there, you notice it says Ezekias. So it ends with an A, an I-A-S, Ezekias. Well, that's Hezekiah. So like uh, Jeremiah from the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see when like a verse is quoted, it'll say, thus was fulfilled by the prophet, and it'll say Jeremiah's. Notice how they both end in the same way. A-R-I-A-H, Jeremiah. But in the New Testament, it's Jeremiah's. It's I-A-S. Same thing with Isaiah. It's Isaiah's. It's, it's uh, you know, spelled, all of it is spelled basically the same except it's an E instead of an I, but they, you know, virtually make the same sound. Like in, you know how the sounds change in Spanish as well with the E and the I. They reverse. They transpose, right? So it's the same thing, you know, when it goes from Hebrew to, uh, very similar at least, feature from he, uh, Hebrew to Greek. So it's Isaias. So the end is, is I-A-S, just like it was I-A-H. So you can figure out who these people are that it's speaking about when you kind of get these patterns of the changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So, the same thing, look at the end of verse 10, very end of it. Uh, it says, and Amon begat Josias. That's Josiah, so that would just be an H. In the Old Testament, it's an S. In the New Testament, you know, Jeconias, that's Jeconiah with an H, right? In verse 11, and Josias begat Jeconias. Uh, we'll keep reading down through now. It says, and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel. And Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. There's another one. That's Zerubbabel is spelled with an E in the Old Testament. O's are swapped out for E's. That's another change that takes place. And there's a couple of other ones. Uh, and you, you can kind of compare them and figure them out yourself. And then we kind of get into some people that aren't really mentioned in any of the uh, 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 genealogies of the Old Testament. It says, And Zerubbabel begat Abiad, verse 13, And Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azer, and Azer begat Sadak, and Sadak begat Achim. And Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Nathan, and Nathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And then it says this, who is called Christ. So that's who that's leading up to. We have the first 14 generations. That was from Abraham to David. He's the king of the Jews. Then you have the next 14 generations. That was from David to Salathiel, which was the time when they were carried away into Babylon. And then after the point when they were carried away into Babylon to the birth of Jesus Christ was another 14 generations. So right here we have the birth of Jesus Christ being mentioned. We're told, it says in verse 16, in Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, that's talking about Mary, of course, was born Jesus, and then it says this, who is called Christ. Now, I want you to go back with me to Psalm chapter number 2, verse number 2. I want to get the definition of Christ, because we're going to be seeing that word repeatedly through the book of Matthew, because that is what the fulfillment is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the coming of the Christ. One moment ago, when I said the King of the Jews... The king of the Jews is the Christ. That is who the king of the Jews is. And we'll get a definition and we'll, we'll get an idea of what the word Christ actually means. So look with me at Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. It's the book of Psalms. We're going to go to, whoops, Psalm chapter number 2. Psalm chapter number 2. It's a pretty famous psalm. You may have memorized this at some point. 
Let me get there myself. Psalm chapter number 2, look with me at verse number 1. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Now look at verse number 2. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and then it says this, and against His anointed, saying. Now keep your hand there, and I want you to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 4. Now we, I'm going to show you the importance of comparing Scripture. And specifically, if you see something that is, that is quoting the Old Testament, it's very important to look that passage up from where it is quoted. Because oftentimes what God will do is He'll teach you something. Just like uh, you, know, you have the method of rep, uh, repetition. You know, God will oftentimes repeat things and you can kind of get, a, get a, a more vast idea of what He's talking about. Another thing that God will do is God will repeat things from Old Testament to New Testament. He will reiterate something or he'll re-quote something. And what he'll do is he'll, he'll exchange words out. He'll use words interchangeably and synonymously. So uh, that verse from Psalm chapter number 2 is actually quoted here in Acts chapter number 4. Look with me at verse number 25. It says, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? So we're in Acts 4, look at verse number 26. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. Now watch this, and against his Christ. Now notice that time, it says against the Lord and against his Christ. What did Psalm chapter number 2 tell you? It said that they were gathered together against the Lord and it said and against his anointed. You know what we can learn from this is what the word Christ actually means. It means anointed. It means that he's selected or it means like you'll often hear that Jesus Christ is the chosen one. What does it mean to be anointed? It means to be chosen. So what it's saying is that he is the chosen one. What does the Christ mean? It means that he is the chosen one. The word Christ actually means Messiah. Now I want you also, let's go ahead and go to John, the book of John. John chapter number 2. I believe it's John chapter number 2. <clears throat> Give me just a second. John chapter number 1. Look at, uh, look at verse number 41. John 1. Verse number 41, it says this, He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah. Now, no, that's Messiah. Remember what I was saying just a minute ago. When you Old Testament, it'll have H right there, right? Uh, A-I-H. Many things are spelled that way, like Hezekiah. It became Hezekiah or Ezekiah. Notice it says Messiah. That's Messiah. So it says, We have found the Messiah, or Messiah, which is being interpreted, look at this, the Christ. So notice that we can learn a lot about just beginning on what does the word Christ mean. Well, the, what the word Christ means is it means anointed or it means chosen one. And the word Christ is the word that is used exclusively in the New Testament to speak about he who is the anointed one. Now, the word Christ, what it, uh, uh, what it is in the Old Testament is Messiah. So the, the word Christ in the New Testament is the Old Testament word Messiah. So when we're saying, hey, Jesus, Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, what we're saying is Jesus the Christ. The Christ is just a New Testament. It's a Greek origin word, originating word. And then also you have the Old Testament word, which is the Messiah. They were just saying Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ is the same thing. And what does that mean? As far as what is the definition, it means anointed one. So that's what we're saying. 
Now, uh, I want you to turn one other place with me while we're looking at this. I want to go to the end of the book of Luke. Luke, and I want to show you that what the Messiah or what the Christ is, is he is the king of the Jews. What the, this is why this is very relevant right now, because what he is going through is, it, what we see in Matthew chapter number one is we see the royal line. That's what you see in Matthew chapter number one. That's why he, he begins right there with Abraham, which is the promise of where the Messiah or the Christ would come from. That is what the promise that was given to Abraham. The promise that was given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, if you will, was the promise of the good news of the Christ to come, the gospel of the Messiah to come and that he would be born of him. So he begins in, in uh, uh, the genealogy with Abraham and he's going down because of him will come the Messiah of the Christ, who is the Christ. Now the Messiah or the Christ is the king of the Jews. He is to be he who is going to rule the people, the ruler of the people. That's why when you follow that line, who does it ultimately get to? It gets to David. Who is what? It tells you David the king. And now what we're going down is we're going down the royal line of the Jews. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be the king of the Jews. That's what you're following. Who is what? And who are we ultimately going to get to at one point? It's going to stop at Jesus the Christ. Now I want to show you that the Christ was uh, uh, prophesied and is the uh, king of the Jews. That's who the Christ is. Look at uh, Luke chapter number 23. Look at verse number 1. It says, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Watch this. Saying that he himself, watch this, is Christ a king. Now notice how that's worded there. It says, saying he himself is Christ. Now who is Christ? A king. So what it's telling you is that who the Messiah is, one of the attributes or one thing that the Messiah or the Christ does, is he's a king. So what ultimately, that's why in Matthew chapter number 1, that's why that genealogy begins with Abraham because that's of whom the Messiah or the Christ is going to come from. And it works its way down to David. And then it highlights right there, David the king, to let you know that now we're following that royal line. And of the Jews, we're on that royal line now. And ultimately, who is going to come forth is he who is going to be the ruler. He is going to be the king of the Jews. This is the royal line in Matthew chapter number 1. Of Abraham, specifically. There were many other Israelites. There were many other Jews. But this is specifically the royal line of the kings of the Jews. And then ultimately, who you see being born at the end is the king of kings of the Jews, who is what? The Christ. That's who the Christ is. So what does the word Christ mean? It means anointed. And what's another word for Christ? Messiah. Old Testament word is Messiah. The word Christ is not found at all in the Old Testament. The word Messiah is found, and when you find it, he's called a prince. What's another word for a prince? A king. So you notice that? What does it mean to be a Christ, uh, the Christ, or what does it mean when they're saying the Christ is going to come? You know who they're waiting for? They're waiting for the king to come, the ruler to come. And we'll see that over and over again with the Israelites. They wanted a king. They wanted Jesus to be a king and to rule over them because that's who the Messiah ultimately is. That's why, you know, uh, he is referred to as the Christ or the Messiah. He is the king, the king of kings. So we see there, it tells us about him. Also, I want to look at one other passage. I do have this, this one I have actually written down. Look with me at Matthew chapter number 27. Matthew chapter number 27. I want, want you to see what's highlighted. Uh, uh, and this is a superscription that was hanging over top of Jesus. And this is meant to be an accusation. 
And you know, the Jews even, they even objected to it. They tried to tell Pilate like, hey, take it down. <clears throat> Don't let it say, you know, that, that he is the king of the Jews. Let it say that he said that he is. Look at, look at uh, verse number 37. And, and set up over his head his accusation written. Look at this. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So it's so ironic, even though the Jews, of course, as we know, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and he died. Do you know what he died with written over his head? Do you know what they had to look at while he was bleeding and dying and he was taking his last breath? They looked at Jesus, whom they had rejected, with a big sign over his head and a superscription that said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And I don't think that it's a coincidence. I think that it's providential that they were like, Hey, change it. And Pilate's like, No. He's not going to die with it saying he said that he's the king of the Jews. God wasn't going to allow that. He's going to die with it saying, this is Jesus. You know who he is? The king of the Jews. Because he was the Christ. And when we, we, we look at Matthew chapter 1, what do we see? The king of the Jews. And notice it ends in Matthew 27 with what? The sign over his head that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That is the theme of Matthew chapter number 1. What we see here in the very beginning. So look at verse number seven, 17. It tells us, So all the generations from Adam to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from, <clears throat> and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So that was right there, the genealogy. That's the prologue. It begins, the introduction begins with the genealogy of Christ. Now here in verse number 18, we're actually going to get into the story of the birth of Christ. Look at verse number 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, that means in this way, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, some people right there uh, will misunderstand the word espoused. And they'll, they'll uh, misinterpret that as saying that they were engaged. The word espoused means that they were married. It's referring to the fact that they were married. And when it says that they were espoused, that means that he was, that was his spouse. And they were one another's spouse. Now, the way to prove that, and this does this a few different times. Verse number 19, it says, Then Joseph, look at this, her husband. So, this is not just her fiancé, like you've heard many people say. A lot of people will just say, hey, they were just engaged. And what the word espoused means is that they were engaged. That's not what that word means. When it says espoused, it means, it, what it's saying is, Mary was married. That's what that's saying when it says espoused. Mary was married to Joseph. And how can you prove that? Because in verse number 19, it refers to Joseph as her husband. Who's a husband? It's who you're married to. So people will have this weird interpretation, and I'm going to show you why it matters here in just a minute, of them just being engaged. But that's not true. They were married. And she, he's actually called her husband a couple of times in this chapter. But this is before they came together. That means that they have yet to have the relationship that a husband and wife have. They have not come yet together, right? They, they didn't know one another is another way that that's worded. It's actually worded that way in this chapter. So before they had come together... It says this, she was found with child of, that means like from, right? She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So now Joseph, of course, he knows that he's never had that relationship with her. He never knew her, right, in that way. And 
you know, obviously he's going to be wondering, like, why are, you know, why are you pregnant? Why are you showing, right? He's like, what in the world is going on here, right? Wouldn't you be wondering, like, what in the world is going on here? Look at verse number 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, so he's a righteous man, so what he did was good here, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Privily just means like privately or secretly, right? Now, what does the phrase mean, put her away? That's not just like using those words, you know, uh, in an in a, a, a individual sense of each specific word. The phrase, put her away, that's a phrase. And what that means is to divorce. It says that he was minded to put her away or to divorce her privily. Saying that he didn't want to make this a public matter. He wasn't going to make a public example out of her. You know, he was just, he was minded. What he wanted to do and how he was thinking that he was going to deal with such a situation was that he wanted to just put her away or to divorce her basically, privately or privately, right? Now, there's a couple of different interpretations of what's going on here. We'll go ahead and read verse 20 and then I want to hit on something. This is, we learn a really good lesson from this chapter when it comes to this subject. It says in verse 20, But while he thought on these things... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, and watch this, thy wife. Notice, they're married, clearly. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So, while he's thinking, and he, he obviously, you know, uh, is thinking that, that she has committed, uh, you know, this act with another man at some point. So, he's sitting here contemplating, and he's saying, you know, she must have, you know, uh, uh, had this relationship with another man and now she's, she's with child. So I'm going to have to do something about this and the way that I'm going to go about it, he's obviously a just man, he knows the law, he knows, his, he knows his, uh, uh, his options. I can make a public example of her or I can put her away privately or divorce her privately. So he's like, that's probably what I'm going to do. While he's contemplating which option he's going to do, the angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream and explains to him exactly what happened. That... This child is the product of the Holy Ghost, of her conceiving by the power of God and by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, there's a couple interpretations of what took place in verse 18 and verse 19. And people have uh, you know, two responses to this and, uh, and, and to the whole situation of divorce. And this is one of the real important reasons why... The book of Matthew, we need to understand that the book of Matthew is profitable for us. There's many people out there that are hyper-dispensationalists and, you know, you know, dispensational to whatever degree. Nobody wants to say they're the hyper-dispensationalists, but people that will go so far as to say, like, hey, you can't get your doctrine from the book of Matthew. This, what I'm about to show you right now, is very important to help you understand and to demonstrate of why we can't just say, hey, there's certain books that you don't read. Because then there's things that we're lacking and information that we're lacking. You know, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So we can learn doctrine from all Scripture. Is this Scripture? Yes. Then I can learn doctrine from it. Case closed. Don't give me, you know, some sub-point or some other note or anything like that. I can learn doctrine from it. I'm going to show you why it's very important because there's a lot of bad teachings about divorce today. There's a lot of bad teachings about divorce and there's, there's basically two responses. Number one is that you, should, you shouldn't ever get a divorce. And this is technically, you know, the true uh, 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 position, the correct position, is that there's never a time to get a, 
a divorce. Now, like I said, technically, because there is one exception, and it's the exception you're reading about right here, and we're going to go into this. Uh, there's one exception for when there's a time, according to the Bible, to get a divorce. Now, God does not just have all of these different, you know, uh, uh, you know, options and ways to get out of being married. It's a vow. And the Bible is very clear about the importance of a vow. You know, let your yea be yea and your nay nay. You know, uh, the Bible says that it's better not to vow at all if you're not going to keep your vows. You know, so it, it's very important to keep our vows. And that's what we do with one another is we, we stand up and we make a promise to one another and we vow to one another. The Bible says that God hateth putting away. It means God hates divorce. Think about that. God hates divorce. And it's a picture of your salvation, by the way. It's a picture of your salvation of when you were born again and you're born again into God's family. And it pictures how you can never, you can never be unsaved once you're saved. It's a covenant that you have with God and there's nothing that can break that covenant. It's the husband and the wife, right? That's this, and, it, and, it, and it symbolizes or parallels the husband and the wife on this earth. As the relationship with the husband and the wife and God and us. So when, when you, you, know, you start you know, uh, messing with the sanctity of marriage and making all these exceptions of, to, oh, you can get a divorce for this reason, you can get a divorce for that reason, it destroys the whole symbolism of salvation and eternal security. Of not losing your salvation and how it's forever and God will never lie, God will never you know, divorce us or put us away. That's one of the other reasons why it's, it's a very, very important uh, doctrine to make sure that we understand. So the correct response is, number one, there is, there's no options or, or no exceptions for divorce. But one, and we're going to look at it. So really, there's, there's no time for divorce. You could say that. And Jesus says that multiple times. The other response, you know, it can vary. Some people, everybody has their own reasons. They like to create their gray areas of, hey, well, this situation's a little bit different, or that situation's a little bit different, or this guy's just so mean, or whatever it may be. You know, you, well, you should have you know, been a little bit more wise before you made those vows. You know, it was your decision. But uh, those are the two options, basically. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter number 19. Matthew chapter number 19, we're going to see in this very book that this is brought up, the subject of divorce, and Jesus teaches on it. Here in the book of Matthew, look at Matthew chapter number 19, look at verse number 3. It says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now notice what they said there. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, it says, for every cause? Like saying for any reason. Like, is it lawful for a man just to divorce his wife for any reason? That's what they're asking. For whatever reason that they want. And this is basically the other, you know, uh, uh, option, the other response to divorce. It says in verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Verse 6, Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? So, they're coming to him and saying, hey, you know, is it lawful to put away your wife for every cause? And then he just responds and says, hey, you know, from the beginning God made them male and female. For this cause, you know, man shall leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And then he explains, God's the one that did that. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let not man, 
you know, uh, uh, what does it say? How is it worded? Put. Put asunder. Let not man put asunder. He's saying because God is the one that created this covenant, created this relationship between husband and wife, and that they would come together and be one. Let not man get in there and, and, and you know, divorce his wife or she to divorce her husband. Don't let man put asunder and divide between them. And that's what divorce means. It means to divide, right? So he's saying don't let man do that. Then he says in verse 7, They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? So they're saying, okay, well, if, they're, if you're saying, it sounds... You know, they're obviously understanding what he's saying. And he's saying, hey, there is no time for divorce, right? There's not a time for divorce ever. So they're like, okay, well then answer this to me then. That doesn't make sense. They, they say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Verse 8, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. Now watch this. But from the beginning, it was not so. And again, that's referring back to the beginning when he made them male and female, right? And they, he joined them together. So let me just ask you, does it sound like God is okay with divorce? Even the exception that's in the law of Moses, God, it says that God put that there because of the hardness of their hearts, because they couldn't handle it, right? So he made this one small exception, and we're going to look at what it is, for them. But it says from the beginning, it was not so. So what God's will would be is what? That there would be no divorce. That there would be no situation where, in which a wife or a husband, both, could divorce one another. Now, I want to go back to the Old Testament where this actual, where this one exception is given. And then we're going to compare it with Matthew chapter number 1 and just show you how the Bible is, is, is uh, meant to teach you doctrinally and how it's important that we have Matthew chapter number 1. I want you to go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 24. We're going to look at that one exception. The one exception in which a wife or a husband is, is uh, permitted to put away their spouse. It's Deuteronomy chapter number 24. It says in verse number 1, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it says this, And it came to pass that she find no favor in his eyes. Watch this. Because he hath found some uncleanness in her. So it's saying... At the moment that you marry her, right, and basically you go in under her, you've just married her, it says, and you find some uncleanness in her. Now notice this is something you're just discovering. So when is that going to take place? The very beginning. The honeymoon, if you will, right? The very beginning. And what does it mean, uncleanness? You find some uncleanness in her, right? This is obviously refer referring to, again, we've seen this a lot, the relationship between husband and wife. You know, there's a parallel passage to this where it talks about that he find that the woman is not a maiden. Now, the word maiden refers to her being a virgin. So this uncleanness that it's talking about would be that this woman has had former relations. That she's not a virgin. So now, let me ask you this question. When that would have taken place, would it have been when the, they were married or, or not married? Prior to the marriage or after they were married? It would be before. Do you understand that? It's not taking place while they're married because he's finding out right away in the very beginning, in the honeymoon. Right? He's finding out, it says he goes in under her and he finds out that there's some uncleanness in her. Right? So, obviously, you know, this is occurring in the beginning and you compare it with the other passage when this is repeated and it's very clear it's happening in the beginning. 
So basically, you find out this woman is not a virgin, that this woman is not who she, she said that she was. It's not a clean woman. Now, at that point, you're like, man, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. I mean, she could be filled with disease. If she's lying to you about something like that, that's a pretty big deal. So keep reading. This is the, the one situation. Watch this. Because he had found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now, let me ask you also another thing. Did it sound like that was public or that was private? What just took place? It was private, wasn't it? Was she made a public example? Did anybody else find out about this? Obviously, the next man didn't even find out about this. You know, uh, in, the, in the sense that he didn't go and tell everyone. I mean, it would have been her responsibility this time to say, Hey, I had this in my past that happened in my past before she married another man. Right? But this was not brought to just the whole city's attention. It was not brought before a board. This happened behind closed doors. It's very obvious. It says, because he had found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement. Notice this. And give it in her hand and send her out of his house. This is taking place between those two together. And it's privately, it's behind closed doors. It's privily. And it says, and when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And then it basically repeats the same thing. And if the next man hates her as well, you know, because he found some uncleanness in her, then he can do the exact same thing. Obviously, she should be telling these, these people. That's the whole reason why she's being divorced is because she's withholding, you know, you know vital information to your husband. I think that's something that he, you know, has the right to know, uh, husband and wife, of course. Uh, but go back to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to notice the, the striking similarity to the situation of what's occurring in Matthew chapter 1. And Deuteronomy chapter number 24. Notice how they ju they're just married. They haven't come together yet, have they? And you know what? Joseph ended up finding some uncleanness in her. She, she's not as clean as he thought that she was. You know, apparently. That's how it seems at least, right? And he's realizing that she's with child. So notice what it says. It says that he was minded, look at it, to put her away privily. Do you know what he was going to do? He was going to get a bill of divorcement. He was going to write it, put it in her hand, and send her out of his house. It's exactly what's recorded in, in Deuteronomy chapter number 24. What exception was the only exception that Jesus said was allowable in Matthew chapter number 19? This exception right here. He referred to, you know, that he gave him one exception. Uh, Brother Rick, do you remember by chance where the other mention in the book of Matthew is located? To, uh, is it Matthew 10? Or Matthew, is it 9? Uh, the other mention of divorce and, uh, and putting away. Is it Matthew 12? Is it Matthew? No, uh, that's not the one that I was referring to. There's one other mention later on, I believe. Maybe it's in Mark. Maybe it's in Mark. I can't remember exactly where it's at. It was, I'd like to look at that real quick if we could. Um, look that up real fast if you don't mind. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll take that down and pause. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, there's one other mention where the Bible actually discusses this again. And you can look it up on your own. It's going to talk about fornication, right? Except it be for the cause of fornication is the phrase that's used. And what is fornication? Is fornication the same as adultery? Are those two things exactly the same? They're not, are they? Fornication is when one person goes to bed or lies down with, they lie down with someone that they are not married to. Neither one of those two people are married. And uh, 
you know, the adultery, the difference of that, it is Matthew 5. You're right, it's Matthew chapter number 5. Go to Matthew chapter number 5. We'll look at this in Matthew chapter number 5 real quick. I thought that, maybe I'm thinking of Mark. I think it's like Mark chapter 12 where this is repeated in the other gospel. But I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter number 5, and I want you to notice how this jives as well. So we can see this doctrine that's taught that divorce is not allowable. All these churches out here are, are, are teaching and promoting and deceiving people and making them think that God is, is okay with divorce. When the Bible tells you in the Old Testament that God or the Lord hateth putting away. God hates divorce. It destroys the sanctity of the picture of a covenant. It, it, you know, God hates when people don't keep their vows. It's a very, very, very big deal when people do not keep their vows throughout the Bible. See, a lot of bad uh, situations occur because people aren't uh, keeping their vows. But I want you to look at Matthew chapter number 5 with me and notice how this jives with everything that we've seen thus far. Look at verse 31. He hath been said, it hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife... Let him give her a writing of divorcement. So notice this phrase, putting away. It's always divorce, right? But I say unto you that whosoever, watch this, shall put away his wife, saving, that means except, for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Let me ask you a question. How many exceptions does it sound like that God makes for divorce? Or putting away? One. There is not multiple exceptions for divorce. I don't care what you think. And let me say this as well. It's not adultery. Now, people may not like this. You may think that it's hard. Life is hard. And when you make a covenant, God takes it serious. God takes those vows serious. You need to actually mean what you say. And we live in a day and age now where people just don't mean what they say. And they think when something actually gets bad, they can just give up. You know, there's a reason why you stand up there when you make the vows and you say, for worse. What does that mean? Does worse sound like good or sound like really bad? Sounds like really bad, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like it falls into the category of maybe unfaithfulness? Doesn't it sound like it falls into the category of maybe something very bad taking place between? He said, for better or for worse. Saying when things are going well, I promise I'm going to stay with you. But guess what else? When things are going bad, I promise I'm going to stay with you. And you know what? Nobody means what they say anymore. You know, that's, what we, that's why people you know, th think that this sounds crazy when they hear me say this. No, you're crazy and you're not loyal to your word. That's the problem. You have no integrity anymore. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody gives a flip about what they say. They'll just say, hey, I'll be there tomorrow. They don't show up. Hey, I'll call you, right? On Friday or Monday, they don't give you a call. Now, nobody cares anymore. Time goes by and they're like, oh, you know what? I forgot about that. And they're just like, Pfft. Turn around and go the other way. No, it means something. God cares about it. God, you know, especially when He gives us promises. Of course, the Lord cannot lie. He never breaks His promises. He's righteous. He's perfect. And you know what? God wants us to also try to do the same. Hey, yes, you know, we are going to come short of, of the glory of God. But you know what? If that's a lot different than just like blatantly sinning, blatantly making decision. I know making a decision. I know that I made a vow, but you know what? I can't handle this anymore. Life is hard. I don't know what you expected. Marriage is not perfect. Marriage is not perfect. You know, you're going to have rocky times. You're going to have hard times. And you know what? When you make the promise, you make the vow, you need to mean it. You need to actually mean for better or for worse. For better or for worse. There are no exceptions to divorce. I don't care 
If you get married and then you find out 10 years down the road, like, hey, I just feel like I don't love you anymore. For better or for worse. It's a covenant. For better or for worse. You know what you do? You work hard on your marriage. Marriage is hard work just like any relationship. Just like any relationship. What do you think it's going to be? Just like it's just constant bliss. Just like you're constantly on your honeymoon. Right? No. You ha it's hard work. Marriage is hard work. You know what you need to do? You need to fix it. You need to be an adult. You need to be mature and have some character and have some integrity. And you need to fix your marriage. You don't just, you know, my husband or my, my wife, they're just developing these poor qualities and I just can't put up with them anymore. Or I've fallen in love with somebody else. You know, people, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? People have all these reasons why they think that their life would be better. And then, all, and then what do they end up doing? They end up, you know, leaving that person and finding out that they were actually pretty happy. Or they have these women, oftentimes that is, that is very common. Mother-in-laws, even father-in-laws sometimes with, the, with the, the, the husbands, but not near as common. Where mother-in-laws are like in the, in the, the, the wife's ear, like, like talking bad about the husband. That's super stinking wicked. And then she's looking down upon her husband. Or maybe like women are in the ear of, of the, the wife speaking bad. And then she'll ultimately, just for petty reasons, people will get divorces over stupid things. If it's not for fornication, then it's not acceptable to God. And He is the originator of marriage. He is the one that made male and female. He is the one that decides when it's alright to make that marriage null and void. And there's only one exception, fornication. That's not the same as adultery. And I'll prove it to you. It says, but I say unto you, verse 32, but I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving, watch this, for the cause of fornication. If Mary would have been unfaithful to Joseph in that situation, what would she have committed, adultery or fornication? Because she would have, been, she would have already been with child right when they were married, but they had not yet come together. What would it have been? Fornication. It would have been before the marriage. Notice, not adultery. Adultery is where you step out on your wife or your husband. They got married and then he found out there's some uncleanness in her. What did Deuteronomy 24 teach? If a man gets married, he comes in on her and he finds some uncleaner. He finds her not to be a maid and not to be a virgin. What would she have committed? What sin? Adultery or fornication? Fornication. So notice that it's not ten years down the road and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, there's some uncleanness in her. I'm out of here. Oh, my wife's annoying. Divorced. She doesn't know how to cook. She's not getting any better. I'm out of here. That's not the uncleanness it's talking about. No, it's talking about... You find out that she's not a maiden. This is immediately. This is fornication. This is the only exception. And look further. I'll prove to you that it's not, that it's talking about two different things. It says, saving for the cause of fornication, watch this, causeth her to commit adultery. Now, I want you to notice that it says, if you do it for any other reason, you're going to cause her to commit adultery. But if she had already committed adultery, how could you be causing her to commit adultery? So do you know what the fornication is? Not adultery. It's not possible. If you compare the two and you logically play this out in your mind, you can see very plainly and very clearly that when it says fornication, it actually means fornication. Because you would be causing her to commit adultery, meaning that, she, that it wasn't acceptable for her to commit adultery previously. Right? So, it's very plain that, hey, I'm sorry, but from the beginning, it's not so. You want to get a divorce? It's Jesus' words, not mine. From the beginning, it's not so. <clears throat> you 
You know, the, the, uh, the Pharisees, they respond after Jesus is done in Matthew chapter number 9. And it's like, if the things be so, you know, that you're saying, then it is good for a man not to be married. They're like, man, if I just can't divorce my wife whenever I feel like it, maybe I shouldn't get married at all. You know, it's like they never had understood marriage and what it's supposed to be like, too. Can you, they're Pharisees, they're supposed to be the doctors of the law, the teachers of the law, and they're like, if what you say is true, you know, it's good for a man not to be married. It's like, goodness sakes, what, how shallow are you in the first place to say, oh, you know, I, I'd rather not even be married than have to be stuck with one woman for the rest of my life. That's what they're saying. How ridiculous. You know what Jesus says? Yeah, basically Jesus is like, yeah, this isn't for everybody. It's a hard saying, I know. It's not for everybody. You know, that's basically the world that we live in today as well. Where people would just the same response. People would, you know what people would say if Jesus stood up and preached the same thing? The same thing the Pharisees said. Man, if that's really the truth of what the Bible teaches and everything, maybe it's just best if I just never get married at all. Because that's going to be hard to never get divorced. And Jesus would say the same thing. Well, hey, maybe, married, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you can't receive this saying. Maybe marriage just isn't for you. Notice God's laws don't budge for you. He's just like, yeah, you know what? You're, it, you're right. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't get married then because this is a big sin. There are no exceptions for divorce and putting away. There are no real true exceptions when we really look at it. The only thing, the only type of situation, it's like it's this extremely rare situation. It's if you find out that she's not a maiden. Now that doesn't happen two years later. That doesn't happen three years later. That's something that you find out in the beginning on the honeymoon or very shortly, you know, shortly thereafter, and then you have this, this trial period of time, right? Because that's when you're going in and consummating the marriage, right? And there's actually, I can't remember what it's called. I think you remember this. There's a law, there used to be a law in the United States of America that gave you like 30 days after marriage. And it wouldn't be considered a true, like, a true divorce on the records. It, was, it, it fell under some other category. In the United States of America, uh, in the earlier days, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but you can look it up. It was a certain bill. And you were given like 30 days in the beginning where you could just null. It's, it, it's something about nullifying the marriage, right? It's nullifying or null, null something. Where you can just nullify it and it's not the same. You know what I'm talking about now? It's not the same as a divorce. You know where that comes from? It comes from the Bible. Where you get the opportunity in the beginning and then you find out, I want to, you know, it used to mean something to people whether you married a virgin. That used to mean, because people were actually virgins often. Now it's like, you can't find one, you know? But it actually used to be something important. It meant something to someone and when they were deceived and lied to, they're horrified. Can you imagine how Joseph felt initially? He's married this woman. He thinks she's a, she, she's a clean, godly woman, and she was. But then, you know, his mind, he's seeing she's pregnant. He's just like, can you imagine that? Marrying a woman, and you haven't come together yet, and a couple of weeks or two weeks go by, and she's pregnant. You realize that she's pregnant. Wouldn't you be horrified? Like, you love this woman. You're expected to spend the rest of your life with her. Or, or just imagine finding out that a woman is not a maiden and not a virgin when you thought that she were, she was and you are. You know, you're a clean, godly man that's wanting to raise a family and live a, a Christian life. You'd be horrified, wouldn't you? It's important. It means something. That is the only exception. The only. Saving for the cause of fornication. That's it. Look at verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her 
is of the Holy Ghost. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter number 1. Real quick, we're going to fly through the rest of this. We'll be done in 10 minutes. Luke chapter number 1. I want, to look with, I want you to look with me at verse 35. <clears throat> verse 35. Look at verse 34 as well. It says, Then said Mary unto the angel... This is just some more details about what took place. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this, this be, seeing I know not a man? So, so she's a virgin and she's saying, how am I going to you know, bring forth this son seeing that I know not a man? I've never come together with a man. I've never lied with a man. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. I'm sorry, come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And then he says this. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So as God is sending His Holy Spirit and miraculously causing her to conceive and to have a child. So that's what it's telling us in verse number 20, that this child is of the Holy Ghost. Basically saying that the, the Holy Ghost is the father of the child. The Holy Spirit is the father of the child. It's of the Holy Ghost. He fathered the child. Look at verse number uh, 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus... For he shall save his people from their sins. So the Bible oftentimes define names for you as well. And that's what the name Jesus means. It means it's the name Joshua of the Old Testament. And you can, I don't have time to show you that right now, but you can do it compares, uh, you can compare the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it quotes the Old Testament speaking about Joshua, and it uses the name Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same name. The name Joshua. Or Jehoshua is also another form of that name, means Jehovah saves. It means Jehovah saves, right? And that's who Jesus was. He was Jehovah in the flesh and he came to save his people. That's why he's called Jesus. And it says he's called Jesus. Why? For, that means because he shall save his people from their sins. He came to save his people. This is God, God coming in the flesh, being born in the flesh. Jehovah, he came to earth, he became a man. He became the Christ and the King to save His people. Look at verse number 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, look at this, which being interpreted is God with us. So what Emmanuel means is God with us with us. Jesus Christ was not just a man. Jesus Christ was not just, you know, uh, just a normal man or a divine man or maybe just a man, and people will say that a man that was just, you know, that was uh, miraculously created, right? People will, you know, uh, believe this when it comes to Unitarianism and things like that and, the, and adoptionism and they have all these, you know, these offshoots of ways in which people just try to deny the fact and deny the deity of God. The deity, I'm sorry, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not just a man. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. That's why he's called Emmanuel. It says Emmanuel, which being interpreted, God with us. Do you know who Jesus was when he was on earth? He was God with them. He was with them. God came and God dwelled among them. The Bible cannot be any clearer. If the Bible is clear about anything, it's clear about the fact that Jesus Christ was God and that he was not just a man. 1 Timothy 3.16 says God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. It wasn't just a man. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. Then it tells you in, I believe it's verse number 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh. Now, what was the Word? It says the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So notice that it's very clearly telling you that the Word was God and the Word was made flesh. Who is the only begotten of the Father? Jesus. You know, over and over and over again, there's so many passages. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 that Jesus was the Lord from heaven. You know, Jesus is, is uh, omnipresent. Jesus is worshipped. Jesus is bowed down to. While God says don't bow down to anyone else, Jesus is referred to as Lord. And people are like, yeah, he's Lord, but he's not God. Thomas looked at Jesus after he had resurrected, and he said to him, my Lord and my God. And you know what Jesus said to him? Blessed art, art thou, Thomas. Same was a good thing. He's blessed. Jesus Christ was God with us. He was not just a man. He was God in the flesh. What an amazing story. There's nothing more amazing and incredible than the gospel of God coming down and being born as a man to redeem and to save his people because he loved them and cared for them. It's an amazing story. It tells us in verse number 24, Then Joseph, being raised from, the sleep, did, from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Now there in verse number 25, it's a perfect verse to turn Catholics to to debunk the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Notice that it says, he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. What does that mean? He knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. It means after she brought forth her firstborn son, he knew her. Till that time. Then he knew her afterwards. Right? Also, another point. Why does it say firstborn son? If, what would you say if I walked in and I only had one child with me and you were like, hey, how you doing, you know, Pastor Baker? And I said, hey, I'm doing well. I shook your hand and said, hey, this is my firstborn. What would you be thinking after that? Would you think that that's my only child? No. I wouldn't say firstborn if I had only one child. Firstborn is to distinguish between the ones that were born after it. I would say this is my only child. So you know what it's saying when it says... And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Saying he knew her after that, right? After she brought forth her firstborn son, he knew her after that, and then she brought forth other sons. That's the point. Other children. And the Bible talks about Joseph and, you know, all these other brothers that he has. You know, Jesus, that is. Jesus had, you know, Jesus had half-brothers. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had half-brothers on this earth that were born from Mary on his fleshly side. You know, obviously not on the spirit side, but on the fleshly side, in the blood. You know, so one other point that I want to end on, just to give you an application, you know, because I went on a little bit longer than I wanted to tonight. There's a lot in Matthew chapter number one, excited about it. The other point that I want to make to give you an application is this. A moment ago, we looked at the genealogies. And one of the things that we saw uh, uh, was that we found a bunch of women and a lot of uh, kind of unexpected characters that were in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tamar. Not very godly, as far as what we were told, right? We don't know about what happened in her life later. Rahab, which is who? Just like Achaz, it was, it was Ahaz. So how would you pronounce that? That'd be Rahab from the Old Testament. So Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, a Moabitess. So Rahab the harlot, Tamar the harlot, Ruth the Moabitess, this isn't looking good. 
Then you have, you know, it doesn't even name her name. It says, you know, Solomon, who was born from he, she, uh, her of whom was the, uh, previously married or, or was the, the wife of, it says, the wife of Urias. Drawing attention to what? The fact that she, Bathsheba, committed adultery with David. Notice these people that are married, that are, that are mentioned, I'm sorry, these women that are mentioned. They're not mentioned in a good light, and yet they're still where? In the line of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple things that we can learn from that. Number one, this idea that there's like this perfect race, like this perfect genealogy, and like the Jews are perfect, it's just like, you know, there's so many different sides. You have the black Hebrew Israelites are like, no, we're never intermingled with anybody. Although it seems like you've never read the book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean, that's what the whole book is about at the end. You know, but uh, even within the line of the Christ and the Messiah, there's multiple people that are not of the Jewish line immediately. Like who? Rahab the harlot. Like who? Ruth the Moabitess. It's like... That tells you right there, like, hey, God doesn't only care about one kind. That's why Jesus, when he was ascending into heaven, just prior to that, he said, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. God loves everyone just the same. doesn't matter, you know, whether you're black, white. That is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with, you know, whether or not God loves you and cares for you. God can use anyone. Of any nationality, that's irrelevant. The nationality is irrelevant with how you know, God can use you. But not only that, God can use you even though you may have a bad past. And a lot of people don't get into church because of this sometimes. And they don't get into serving God because, they, because of things that they had done in their life. I even know people that don't get saved because of it. And, they even, and this person ended up getting saved, but they understood the gospel. They even said, like, I know all I have to do is believe... He's like, but just everything that I've done in my life in the past, it just, it, it's just too hard for me just to, to, to put that away and to even just put all my faith in Christ. So it, just, it, just, it, just, it just bothered him. It made him feel too guilty. You know, and sometimes people may think like, hey, I just can't change my life. I've went on too long down this path. Or I can't be used of God. Look at what family I come from. Look at how poor I am. Or look at all of these different things. You can be used by God. If Rahab the harlot can be used by God, you can be used by God. You know what it, it, it does? It gives you no excuses. Look at the people that are in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the line, and they were used to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The King of the world. Who was it? Rahab the harlot. Look at, it's, it's this, and the same is true if we look at the, this principle with Jesus in his life. If Mary Magdalene out of whom he cast seven devils. You have fishermen that he brought and used. You have Matthew, who is a, a tax collector. The publicans were known for ripping people off and doing mischievous things, deceitful works with you know, money and things like that, just like you know, every government that's ever existed. But you know, they could still be used by God. So you have no excuse. That's what we learn from those genealogies. You say, all these genealogies don't help me anything. You learn things from those genealogies. A lot of stuff. And yeah, it may be a little bit deeper and take a lot of time to study it and things like that. But you know what? We need to delve into these things and learn things from these. We need to not skip over the genealogies. Read them. And then you'll start realizing, oh, I know these, these stories a little bit better than I thought. I know who these people are. And then the whole, pu the whole puzzle starts to come together much clearer of the, the timeline of what took place. 
Now, so notice that chapter number one, what do we, what is this about? It's about the king of the Jews. That's what it's about. And the whole, the whole book is going to follow that same line where it's a very Jewish book. And I want to end on this. You notice that the very end, what did we see happening? We saw a prophecy of the Old Testament being fulfilled. A prophecy that the Messiah would come. The Old Testament scriptures, that which was committed unto the Jews, we saw that being fulfilled, and we're going to see that discussed a lot. There's a lot of scripture from the Old Testament being fulfilled, which was the Old Testament pointing towards the Messiah to come. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, uh, uh, dear Lord, for the Christ that he came. We thank you for the genealogies. There's so much that we can learn, that they're so clear, and all of the different uh, resources that we have within the Bible that we can compare Scripture with Scripture, dear Lord, and, and grow in knowledge. Uh, create in us a zeal and a, and a desire for, for, for more wisdom from your word. And uh, give us understanding and enlighten us through the Holy Spirit. We love you. ask you to keep us safe tonight, dear Lord. And uh, continue to bless us. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Alright, let's open up our hymnals. Last song for the evening. Let's open up to 147. Song number 147. Song number 147, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Song number 147. <clears throat> What a fellowship, what a joy divine. 